and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only podcast where in the sincerest form of flattery to the game point salad, we've rethemed dice fishing roll and catch to go hunting for vegan edamame options, and we're calling it Podcast. I'm your host tonight, Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Mr. Jake Kloppenstein. Jake, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, you uh, you can definitely tell that we had a week off because you, I think, have spent your entire week planning that joke. That was very well orchestrated. I just think it kind of lacked being funny, but that's totally fine. You'll notice we did skip that 10 minutes before we started off going, oh, crap, I don't have a tagline. What are we going to do? Yeah, very quick, very fast. Well, anywho, that's wonderful. Uh, your joke was uh, well orchestrated, but I don't know. You know, you've done better. I would usually give most of <laughs> your jokes a B or an A. This one maybe is funnier on paper. Yeah, a little timely being that we've been uh, chatting at length about corny jokes like point salad and deck builders. So, you know, I thought podcast would be a game just waiting to happen. That's good. That's good. That's good. I like it. Today, we're going to do something a little different. We are not going to follow our standard format of talking about the games we played for about 75% of the episode and then musing on something random for the other 25%. We actually have a very tightly focused episode today that is weirdly so focused, so tight, (laughs) talking about games. We have fallen into a thing that we have found a lot of fun in doing. It's called the Pub Meeple Ranking Engine. And what it is, is it's a tool that you can load your entire Board Game Geek collection in. For those of you that keep your Board Game Geek collection on Board Game Geek, you can load it into there. And then it does a A versus B comparison on every game you have. Would you rather play this or would you rather play this? Would you rather play that? Would you rather play that? And what it comes up with is a top 10 list of all of your games in your collection and the ranking on which ones are your best and your worst so that you can look through there and make a list of my top 100, 150, however many games you have. Now, what you don't realize when doing that is when you have a sizable collection, all those combination adds up a lot. Like it popped up and said, you're going to have to do a thousand comparisons. Are you ready? I'm kind of going, what? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is why I kept on, uh, which is why I kept on trying to make it less things. I originally took with every any game that's a seven or above that I'd ranked. And then I went to eight and above. And then I finally said, this is going to take too much time. I'm just going to do the nines and above for mine. I did all of them. Well, I didn't do all of them. Good and we'll talk you. about that in a minute. But I, I think there's also value in seeing what your lowest ranked games are. When I went through and ranked too, I did it off of plays, not off of collections. So it's not only just the games that I own, it's the games that I've played because you know there's a bunch of games that I've played a bunch of times that I don't own. It would be wrong right. to not include those in my favorite games because I certainly have some highly ranked games that I don't personally own. So I did it off of the games that I have played and compared all of those things. Now, before I went through and figured out my top 20 games, I also did some editing. I went through and deleted a bunch of things that really I didn't think made sense in the context of comparing my top 20 games. For example, I eliminated all fillers from that because I didn't want to be in a position where I was trying to decide between some three and a three to four hour heavyweight Euro game and Love Letter. Like that made no sense at all. So I eliminated functionally anything that I would consider a filler. Now, for me, that's a eh, less than 30 minute game generally right around that 45 minute there was some wiggle room like I did include games like uh, 13 days for example which I you'd probably argue is a filler but it kind of plays like a real game so I left that one in there I also deleted 18xx games and this is controversial a lot of people that are doing rankings are like grouping 18xx as a category under 1830 
I know that's how you did it, Jake, and we'll hear about that next episode. A hundred percent. Because I think I think a top 20 without 18xx would be just not a top 20 worth listening to. Yeah, I tried that originally, but then I realized it was like trying to compare Agricola to Dungeons and Dragons. Like 18xx to me is like like a whole different genre kind of. And it again, it sort of didn't make sense comparing a game versus a genre. And so for me personally, I nuked it out of there because, yeah, certainly some days 18xx, you know, pick your title is going to be my top ranked thing. Other days it's not. Other days I just want to play a Euro. So I don't know. It was more like comparing 18xx versus Euros rather than a specific game. So anyway, administratively, I nuked 18xx titles out of there for the same reason. I also nuked Gloomhaven because Gloomhaven's kind of got like Jupiter-like gravity around it, where how do you compare a individual play of Great Western Trail versus 90 individual adventures for Gloomhaven? And, you know, the years of experience you can have around that. That was hard. So this is my top 20 games, not including fillers, not including 18xx, and not including Gloomhaven. Make sense? Got it. It's your list. You can do with it whatever you want to, Mr. (laughs) Tusky. However wrong it may be. Totally fine. Also, one other thing I had to do with this list beforehand, and this is actually for the astute listeners among us that I've talked to in the past couple of weeks. This is my second crack at this. You'll recognize that some things I talked about then aren't on my list and some things that I didn't talk about are on my list because I redid this in the past couple of weeks because I realized that a lot of my choices were being influenced by the shiny. I have completely a little goblin brain that is that is really attracted to shiny things and I can't get over little shiny things. And I realized that I had plays of things that I had a really fun time playing extremely recently that were getting extra points just because they were something really fun really recently. And my goblin brain was saying, oh, that game's great. And having a couple of weeks to just sort of step back and realize I'm like, yeah, it was a great game, but Not maybe it wasn't a top 10 thing. Yeah. <laughs> It was in the top 10 of games I've played in the last week, not overall. I also found that having a couple of weeks to step back from my collection and to really not look at shiny things that happened recently helped a lot, too, in making this a more endearing point in time. With no further ado, these are my top 20 games as of fall 2019. Oh, my gosh. This is the first time we've done this, Mark. This is so fun. I know. I know. And and man, everybody else does it. We didn't want to be left out of the party. And hey, is there anything clickbaitier than a top 20 game list god no god no we are the clickbaitiest <laughs> uh, yep if everybody else is getting clickbaity we want some too before we get into this we're going to count it down from 20 to number one my honorable mentions ahead of time 25 through 21 castles of burgundy indonesia glory to rome snowdonia master set and PAX Premier Second Edition. All right. So before we hop into the your actual realist part of the list here, why did you put like all of my favorite games up here? This is a travesty <laughs> that the fact that these didn't make your top 20. That's like if you were to ask a good game night for Jake or like a game weekend, what you'd want to do for like a full day of gaming, like 10 a.m. till 1 a.m. Those five games would be a great way to fill the time. Oh, well, yeah. And man, it's hard. I look you look at those things like I submitted this list to you last night and you went, your list is wrong. Yeah, it's it's 100 percent wrong. <laughs> Why are these games not higher? <laughs> You'll have to the, the listeners will have to make sure uh, they will uh, listen to mine next week so we can actually get a correct version of the top 20. But with that being said, <laughs> I'm excited to learn more about your wrongness here, Mark. Now, I noticed a few broad trends and I'll talk about this as we go on. And this is the first of many trends. Oh, my God, am I an Uwe Rosenberg fanboy? 
Yeah, it's <laughs> it's ridiculous. We'll we'll do a tally each one. Oh, I know. So this is the first of the Uwe Rosenberg hit parade. At number 20, my number 20 favorite game is 2014's Fields of Arl, which is a funny pick given that it's only a two-player game. Right. So this is a um it's a game about farming. Everybody shocked. It's an Uwe <laughs> Rosenberg game. <laughs> of course everybody, it's about farming. Okay. Everybody sitting down. It's a game about farming. You know, it's a really delightful little two-play experience that I don't have a lot of bigger, heavier two-player games that aren't war games. I'm looking at you, Twilight Struggle. This is a little more peaceful. It's a little more pastoral where, hey, we're worried about farming peat and growing sheep and all the fun farming things that Uwe Rosenberg does. What I think is super cool about this game is that it plays over a set number of seasons and it TikToks between the two seasons. And the actions you can do in each season are completely different. You have some summer actions and the summer actions are all things you do in summer. Like, you know, you harvest and you go out and you clear peat from the marsh and you do all that sort of things. And in the winter, you take those raw materials and you make them into finished goods. Like you actually make boats during the winter and you take your leather and you, you, you cure them and you bake bread out of all the wheat that you harvest. And then you go back and you have another summer and you get more resources and you keep ticking and talking to get resources so that you can build buildings and get victory points. This all plays out in about, uh, oh, two, two and a half hours and so forth with two people. And you definitely have a full heavyweight big box Uwe Rosenberg experience. What I think is interesting about this game is that you can see flashes of what will become parts of Feast of Odin later on, because what you can do is you get this thing called uh, tools or shovels or whatever that you can upgrade as the game goes on. You can essentially move a counter up and do that same action at a stronger level later in the game which is almost a uh, flash to what would become the uh, commit additional Vikings in a, in a feast for Odin later on. Oh yeah. I mean, Uwe has done a great job of making a bunch of games that somehow seem different, but also at the same time seem very iterative. And it's always fun being able to pick out certain mechanisms from one to the other. So that's 2014's Fields of Arl by Uwe Rosenberg, published by Z-Man Games. Right. And that's probably the game on this list that I know the least about. I have played nearly every single one two or three times. I think that one I've only played once, and it was via Tabletop Simulator. Yeah, we whipped this out late one night and uh, gave it a whirl and so forth. But it's just due to the fact that two-player games just don't often get played in our little group. They don't. They certainly don't. And there's some higher up on this list here that I think me and you would rather play if it was a two-player game. So love to try this one. Um, I like most Uwe Rosenberg games. The, the worst in Uwe's Rosenberg game has been to me is meh, so... Always down to try other ones again. What's your number 19 there, Mr. Teske? Number 19. Let's keep the Uwe Rosenberg parade rolling forward. This is 2013's Glass Road. Glass Road is a game about, well, are you sitting down, Jake? Oh, I'm sitting. I'm always sitting, Mark. Not farming. <laughs> it's about crafting. But you still have uh, field workers and stuff out getting water and getting clay and making glass and doing all the, uh, you know, sort of pastoral things that life in small villages appeal to Uwe Rosenberg about. Right. And what the coolest thing about this game that I like is there's this weird mechanism on the inside that I don't think he's used in any other game, right? Well, not completely true. Oh. That's because you have not played Aura and Labora yet. Oh. You would know, <laughs> yeah. you fanboy, you. I know. So again, you can sort of see the spark of Glass Road coming forward into Aura and Labora. And why don't you go ahead and describe that interesting resource wheel that uh, I cut you off on. Happily, no worries. So functionally, it's this weird resource clock 
it's kind of angled and depending on where it is on the clock is how many of that resource you have. And so what's neat about those, there's ever an open spot in between. So let's say you have one of every one of the lower resources or something along those lines. They'll instantly convert into the more deluxified resource, which are on a different point of the thing. So there's always this push and pull of how many resources you're going to have at a certain point in time with the fact that we're glass blowers always being factored in because they're always going to convert sand and heat and coal. I can't remember what the heck the the actual things are, but we'll actually well, convert food. it into glass and food. Yeah, right. Everybody's got to eat to work. Yeah. And there's two dials, actually. There's one that converts a bunch of resources into glass, you know, like sand and food and so forth. And there's another one that converts clay and food and other thin heat into brick. So you're always trying to take your resources and make glass or make brick and use those glass and brick and other things into buying buildings. One of the things I love about this game is it's short. It's shorter. It's a little lighter, a little bit more accessible. It's a quick teach. And you can really play this out with a group of four players in an, uh, under an hour without any difficulty. Whereas I would say that is definitely not the case with a lot of his larger box games. Agreed. Yeah, this game is just absolutely fast. I'm always perplexed when we play it so quickly, because usually when you think of a new Rosenberg game, it's like an hour and a half to two hours. And this one's done in like 45 minutes to an hour. There's also a really clever following mechanism in there where everybody puts a card down and somebody plays their card for a specific role that they're going to do. And if you've also got that role in your hand, like not down, not one that you pick, but if you've got that in your hand, you get to play that card down. And not only do you get to do sort of a weekend version of what that action is, you also just made the person who put that role down do the weekend version of what that role is. So it's both a plus to you to have that in your hand and a negative to the person that plays that card. And that adds for a really creative bit of interaction between players. Awesome. Yeah, it's a good game. I really like this one. I haven't played this one in a while. I've been adjacent to it a lot. I think you've played it a lot in the last about six months. This one really hit hard in my family. Like uh, this is a really popular game among my wife and kids. And if we just sort of want to whip out and play a game in an hour that's not a filler, this is one that often will hit the table for us. Well, that's awesome. That's Glass Road from 2013 by Uwe Rosenberg in Mayfair Games. This is Uwe Rosenberg count number dose for those paying attention at home. Number two. We got a little break from Uwe coming up here. And this one is, oh, this is actually the oldest game on my list in my top 20 list is coming up at number 18. This is one that I had rated much, much higher in my first swipe through there. And that was on the heels of the fact that I had just played it extremely recently. I still think it's a top 20 game. Maybe not a top five game for me. I'm referring to Age of Steam from 2002 by Martin Wallace, published by most recently Eagle Griffin Games. Well, and also to couple on the hotness here, we have our Kickstarter delivering today for me and sometime in the next couple of weeks for you. Hopefully, if you ever get shipping notification. I think they went alphabetically, Jay. Klopfenstein is definitely before Teskey. Not by much, though. You'd think you would have gotten yours by now. I still have not received my shipping notice, and you're getting yours, so... <laughs> Today is a good day. I will hopefully bring it to games tonight, so you get to see and envy over my Age of Steam. What you're doing in Age of Steam is you are investors, or you're actually not investors, you're actually trained companies who are trying to become the most profitable and make the most money. There is this map, and it's technically pick up and deliver, but a lot of people don't call it pick up and deliver because you never actually pick up the things. You're never in possession of the cubes that you're moving. But function, what you're doing is you're laying track to connect different cities to move different cubes from one city to destination cities to what want that certain type of thing. 
Depending on how far you move, you get more money into your company. There's a little bit of uh, money management here. But what's really cool about this game and why I think we like it so much, it is punishingly tight. You're always constantly off by a dollar. You'll go bankrupt if you can't afford everything. And it is just so mean. It is one of the meanest games I think we've played. And I have yet to play a game where the person in last place doesn't completely check out. (laughs) Well, yeah, it is so brutal that you get behind this death spiral of poverty. Man, you get in the zone where you're taking loans just to stay alive and you have no prayer of ever being able to pay those things back or do anything productive with them. You're literally just taking loans to not go bankrupt and get out of the game. And there's a certain point where you just got to go. Nope, I'm just I'm done. I'm I'm dead. Stick a fork in me. There's no way I'm getting out of this hole right now. So, boy, that speaks to me to the brilliance of the game and the fact that they've made something wired so tight that every decision that you make has massive consequences and to what you do in the later on in the game. And everything is an impact like that dollar that you earn this round may save your butt a few rounds later. It may mean the entire game if you make an extra dollar in the first couple of rounds. Or spend a dollar less on a connection or go to this city versus that other city or put out the right color cubes that you can ship and somebody else can't. Every decision has amazing gravity in this game. And that's why it's getting a reprint now 17 years later. That's why it's been through multiple editions. That's why there's 75 maps out for it or something like that. Agreed. The only thing that I will slightly say is annoying about it, and this is from a layperson's decision. I've always heard this game is like an intro to 18xx. And when we were first played this game, I kind of thought it'd be that. I knew it'd be slightly financial and stuff like that, but it is it shares nothing in common with 18x, to be honest. I mean, it's much more similar, in my personal opinion, to a game like Brass than it is to age 18xx. It's a bunch of really tight euro mechanisms put together with a slight financial spin. Yeah, I think, you know, the common thread there is they both have hex tiles and you're both laying track. And, you know, if you just kind of walk by and glanced at each game, you'd think that it was some very minimalistic looking 18xx. But yeah, they other than hex tiles, they share nothing. Yeah, agreed. And they're shares, but whatever. It's just borrowing points from the future anyways. So that is Age of Steam. I am in possession of the new fancy copy and Mark is not. So life is good. What's your number 17, bud? You know what, Jake? What's that? Did you get the upgraded trains or not? Of course not, because I'm a disc man forever. I bet that's what's holding mine up is the fancy pantsy trains. Yeah, and it should because it's the wrong choice. The fancy dancy trains look stupid. Give me discs or give me death. (laughs) I may side with you if this holds up my game much longer. (laughs) All right, well, let's move on to number 17. Now, the second theme that I noticed as I went through all of these things is I really liked games in the mid-teens. Like, most of my games in this top 20 are from the uh, 2013, 14, 15 band. Like, you look down all of them. There's only a couple from the last year, and there's only a couple old ones. Just about all of my favorite games were right smack dab in the mid-teens. And this is one of them. At number 17, the only Vita Lacerda game on the list... The Gallerist from 2015, published by Eagle Griffin Games. The Gallerist is a game that you play art collectors that are trying to, or art promoters, really, I would say, where you're trying to discover new artists. You're trying to have them make great art pieces. You're trying to lure people into your gallery and then sell them your pieces of art. Meanwhile, investing in all these things and earning additional money along the way. I don't know that I would have guessed in advance that this would turn out to be our favorite Vita Lacerda game, but man, I love this game and just recently played this one last week two weeks ago i forgot how amazingly well themed every single mechanism is in this game where little things like hey i sell a piece and somebody has to leave my gallery that doesn't make any sense well yes it does they're the one that bought the painting and they just left right they're not they're not going to stay there anymore they've already spent their money right exactly 
This is a one of the heavier games on the list for sure. You know, clocking in at just over four on the board game geek. And, you know, I think we rank this one a, a 4D on the mogul scale. I've now had the chance to play this uh, oh, probably four or five times, given how heavy it is. And Jake, I know that you're a fan of the Gallerist as well. Yeah, I like it the most. It's I'm not the biggest fan of Vitalicerta games. I don't usually like games with subsystems and kind of complicated. OK, well, I'm do this action. OK, well, that actually has six different parts to the action and you have to do this, this and this and this. But the gallerist has slipped through my snarky filter and I really enjoy it. It's a game. I think it's my favorite Vital Assert. I haven't played that many of them, but I definitely really like this one. It's wonderful presentation as well. And I know we will probably say that about a lot of these games on the list, but I want to take a quick moment to absolutely point out how gorgeous this game is because the production is, I think, the best produced game I know. Like all of the big box Lacerda Eagle Griffin games, they're all amazingly produced. The bits are great, thick cardboard, beautiful art. You know, that Eno tool combination has really <laughs> paid dividends for the output of Vita Lacerda and Eagle Griffin. And this one is square in the pack of that one. Like, I love the box. I love the little art pieces in there. Just, I think this is also one of the easiest to grok. Some of the games get a little busy. Like, there's a lot of iconography in there. This one is pretty easy to understand, like all the arrows all make sense. The amount of background art isn't overwhelming. And once you understand the core on how everything works, the game makes a lot of sense because thematically it makes so much sense. Now, one thing I did forget about this that I was kind of rudely reminded of last time is who the end game scoring is a beast on this one. There is a lot of things to score. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, there is a lot. And I at least from seeing the score disparity between all the times you've played. It is also pretty mean when you're scoring all these things because you don't realize how far behind you are. No, but it seems like every time I've seen somebody win is they're ahead of the pack by 35, 45 percent in victory points. I absolutely wrecked everybody at this game last time because for the first time I managed to stay pretty focused and I just I focused on a few artists and I really promoted the daylights out of their art and really boosted their value and. Yeah, that got me a massive disparity in victory points at the end. Oh, geez. But yeah, I really like this game. I want to play it more often. It's definitely one of the higher list games that I'm happy to see that's this far up on the list. And uh, we should play it more often. It's a good one. Indeed. That's uh, the Gallerist from 2015, Vita Lacerda and Eagle Griffin Games. We're going now to one that is probably one of the most played games and that I have in this list, a game that is one of my family's favorite games. And you've heard me talk about a few times here. I most recently got to play this one at Klopcon about a month ago at this point. Also, probably the silliest and best theme game of anything on this list. I'm talking about 2011's Dungeon Pets by Vlada Chivadel and Czech Games Edition. Dungeon Pets is an extremely cute game that is about raising little monsters in a pet store and trying to take them to little monster pet shows and score the best at them in the judge. And by the way, bribe the judges if you don't get what you want and then sell them to weird little dungeon monster lords that come by and want to buy your little monsters and bring them home. Bonus, it's the game that lets you say poop at least 75 times throughout the course of the game because that's one of the resources you do have to manage. Sometimes you even get to score your poop, which is even more fun. This game, do not be fooled, is a ridiculously heavy game. Our resident savant Steven loves this game and puckers every time he plays it because he just he kind of furrows his brow and says, oh, this one makes my head hurt. Yeah, it, is, <laughs> it is certainly not light. And I think that's kind of the slight downfall of this game for me, where it comes off as this cute little light theme and you expect it's going to be something we don't have to think much. It's kind of more fun. But oh, man, this game is thinky. Oh, for sure. There's a bunch of steps to it. But I have found that this is a game that is actually really well placed to, I don't know, trick is the wrong word, coerce, 
entice people into playing games that are heavier than they would normally play. And as long as you've got somebody running the game that understands the flow of the game and can manage that, you almost forget that it's as heavy as it is because everything is so thematic. For example, at Clopcon, we had your young cousin out there playing and she does not like heavy games and she loved it. Oh, that's great. She didn't she completely understood how to play. She had no problem with the mechanisms and she absolutely destroyed us at it. Well, that's probably because you were doing such a good job of being a good teacher there, Mark. Everyone knew it quickly and you didn't have time to actually formulate your strategy. I was burning a lot of cycles on running the game. I'm not going to lie. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think it's a great game. I am pleasantly surprised that it's this high because this was the other one. And there's a handful of these on the list. I was like, really? I didn't know you liked that one so much. And I kind of feel bad. I feel like we should definitely be playing this one more. And the fact that I played it once and gave it kind of the, yeah, that's great. That's fine. I don't really need to play it again, but I understand why people can like it. We're going to have to we're going to have to beeline this one up to the front. Yeah, this is a game that uh, I have played a lot of times and isn't any time, any place for me. Got it. Well, that's great to hear. I will say that it's a 2011 release. The artwork is endearing and cute and funny, but looks pretty 2011, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I it definitely could use a graphics design rehaul, I think. It just doesn't seem like there's a lot of information actually present on the board. And you're kind of searching for it in other places, and it just doesn't really flow the best. If they were to redesign this game, it would be certainly more in my wheelhouse. Busy is what I would describe it as. To say the least. Oh, you know what I want? you imagine Ryan Lockett redrawing Dungeon Pets? Oh, that'd be adorable. It'd be cute. Everything would be lizardy. Oh, I want that. I want that. That'd be awesome. It's not his game, so that's never going to happen, but I want that. Anyway, Dungeon Pets 2011, Vlada Chivadal, Czech Games Edition, checking in at number 16. Moving into our top 15, and uh, Jake, I understand that these are all games that you have played a ton of. Is that correct? Yes, there's a handful of them I've only played once, but... I mean, this, this is the part of the games where I actually know and I've actually played more recently than the other one. So I'm excited. Why don't you do number 15? Because I have words on this one. <laughs> number 15 is the only other two player game on this list. It's a game that I probably should hate. But as themes go, this is a 10 out of 10 theme for me because, oh, man, I love the Cold War and I love everything about it. This is Twilight Struggle from 2005, published by Ananda Gupta and Jason Matthews, published by GMT Games. So I'm always surprised that you like this one this much. It makes no sense to me. You're not wrong there. And there's also this magical time pre-Jake Mark friendship where you played this game a bunch. And I just like somehow am unaware of that. And every time you bring it up, I'm I, like somehow it doesn't sink in on me. I keep on forgetting that, you know, this game fairly well. Oh, yeah. I've probably played this about, I don't know, 10 or 12 times, which given that this is a really long game, it doesn't seem like it should be. But somehow a game of this tends to take four or five hours. Yes, maybe it's just because we're playing wrong. No, the Twilight Struggle people will come into the comments and tell how bad we are at it. But why don't you describe a little bit about the game? <laughs> sure. So this is at its heart a war game. It's a war game where there's not actually people attacking other people per se. I mean, there's a couple of minor things like that. But really, it's about global domination between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. It's a card driven game, meaning that every turn you play a card and you either use that for the event on there or you use the action points. Where the stress comes in is that you're forced to play cards that are events for the other player. And if you do that, that event triggers and that event is never something you want to have happen. So the core conceit there is managing how do you maximize the positive stuff for you and minimize the negative stuff that helps your opponent. Meanwhile, trying to spread your chits around the world and get more influence in key areas before scoring happens than your opponent has. The thing that amazes me on every single play that I go through on this one is that 
wow, this goes down like it did in real life amazingly frequently. Like you look at how geographic areas play out and you think that's exactly how it happened in history. And that happens so often in this game that I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by it every time it does. Yeah, I've actually heard some BGG threads about people using this game to teach the Cold War. It does that good of a job. Obviously, I was not alive for most, if all, of the Cold War. So I don't really know how thematic it is from being their standpoint. But yeah, I just I also like what this game has to offer questions wise. It's a fun hand management game where everything you do, it seems to just be really bad and hurt helps the opponent a lot. And so it's kind of fun to know which card can be played at certain points. My main complaint about this game, and I think you've probably maybe played it enough to get over this, is deck knowledge is very important in this game. And with the fact that it's a three hour ish first gameplay, it should be less than that. We know that. But with the fact that it's such a long teach and on top of that, you should really know which cards are in which deck. It can get really out of hand really quickly. So I actually don't pull this one out very much. I don't even think it's in my top 50 games. You know, Jake, this might be a case where. You don't play it for the same reason I don't play Terra Mystica and I don't play Gaia Project is that you perceive that other people know it better than you. Oh, it's not a perceived knowing. It's just I'm not interested in learning the cards, if that makes sense. Sure. And I wish there was a game that took this game system and kind of expanded on it with cards that weren't as like arid and I could kind of know where to focus, which they kind of did with the expanse. So. Sure. I would say that, yes, I'm aware that there are cards that you really have to know. And if you played with high level players that play it really well, you're going to get absolutely obliterated if you don't know those cards. But I don't play it often enough where it matters. Like the one time a year it comes out and plays or twice a year. I don't remember what those cards were. And, and by the way, whoever I'm playing with doesn't know them either. So it sort of levels the playing field back on the, hey, neither one of us know the cards really. So giddy up. Got it. All right. Well, that is Twilight Struggle, a wonderful game. I'm happy. Maybe we should play it more often. If, if you're such a big fan of it and I don't know much about it, maybe it's a good time for us to learn together. You definitely like war games more than me, so I would think oh, yes. this is one you should love. I know. And I, I love the presentation. I love the big board. It's just mainly that I don't know who to play it with. There's people that like this game. I've taught it to a handful of people, but beyond it being like an introduction of, hey, this is what it has to offer. It seems like we never really take the next step. To me, Jake, this is one. I know you're not a big fan of Tabletop Simulator, but this is almost the game that Tabletop Simulator was invented for because it's a super long game between two people where you can save the game between rounds. So like literally we could just fire up and play a round or two every night at 1030 p.m. or something like that. Well, and beyond that, too, there's a Steam port of this game, and I think there's one on iPhone, too. It's just do we want to spend our time doing that? I actually uh, tried inviting you to a game of this on the iPad a couple months ago. And I got crickets. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think my I need to buy an iPad. It's Christmas time. Maybe I should treat myself for board games. I don't know that that'd be a great experience on an iPhone. Yeah, it's a little too much. So <laughs> anywho, that is before we get too lost in the weeds here, we got 14 more games to go through. That was Twilight Struggle. Let's move on to number 14, Mark. Number 14. Well, let's continue the 2015 theme. Another war game. This one about a much earlier conflict. We've talked a lot about this game on this podcast because it's one of our favorites, both of us. This is 2015's The Grizzled by Fabian Raffaud and Juan Rodriguez, published by Come On. And before people get mad at us, we mean war game is not a war game like the GMT style games, but more of a war game is in a game about conflict. It does not play like your typical war game. It is a war themed game. Perfect. We love The Grizzled. And the reason why we love this so much is because I think it evokes one of the best feelings in any game. And best feelings not mean a happy feeling. The feelings that you feel in this game are awful, but it evokes it in such a way that it just is 
so unlike any other game. All it is is you're trying to play some cards and mill a deck. And what you do actually on your turn is really simple. You just either play a card or you withdraw. But what's neat about this is you can't actually converse about what's in your hand because then the game could probably solve it. You could play it open. You could just determine every point to who and who and who to do what. But you start off this game with a jovial group of people who are drinking and having fun. And you'll see immediately the dour straits and the serious attitude and the sad feeling that this game evokes, which is just amazing. It's it does a good job of all you're doing is you're a bunch of regiment people, World War One on the French, and you're just trying to survive the war. And I don't know any game that evokes a feeling more than this. If you want to hear a very long format about it, listen to our podcast episode with Dan Thoreau of Space Biff. And we talk about it for, I think, like 20 minutes in that podcast. <laughs> yeah, it turns out it's one of his absolute favorite games, too. And he uh, he really talks a lot about sort of the shared experience of hopelessness and the, uh, the, the byproducts of the feelings that that evokes. I found it almost poetic to listen to. Yeah, it's a wonderful game. I also most recently upgraded my copy to the Armistice Day edition, which gets rid of the little cardboard cutouts and gives you really cool. I mean, Simon, come on, cool mini or not. They're well known for making awesome plastic. And I love the fact that minis really don't add anything to this game. You don't move around a map or do anything. But having your little kind of chubby dude with a giant mustache standing out there with a tin cup strapped around his neck and a rifle on his back is cool. Yeah. I mean, I I don't have the mini version, but maybe it's just because I have the expansions already the expansion pardon me but yeah it's, it's it's such a good game i love this game and i think me and you both like it from a very intelligent standpoint but it seems like we haven't brought it out as much just because it really is like a black cloud over a game night yeah it's heavy because there you know there's a sense of gloom and doom and it's very difficult to actually win on this one i think some of the more recent expansions have made it easier to win like at your orders certainly made it easier to win versus the base version absolutely let's move on to the next one mark a much more chipper game yes This one's about as light and happy as they get. This is by somebody that I just talked about that I wish would redo my favorite game, Dungeon Pets. This is number 13, Near and Far, one of the newest games on the list from 2017 and Ryan Lockett and Red Raven Games. Near and Far, I'm not entirely sure is actually a game. It might be an activity. It might be an adventure. I'm not sure, but I love it and my family loves it. And that's probably why I love it. We are working through the campaign mode on this one, and what it is, is it's a game of resource management where you get a bunch of artifacts that you have to buy, and you run around the map and you get stuff. You get bread, and then you get an... It's so weird, right? It's Ryan Lockett. So you get emus to help you (laughs) carry your stuff around, and you get bacon, and then you go to the mine, and you... Anyway... The whole the whole notion is ostensibly you're trying to score points and it's a, you know, your resource conversion euro and you're supposed to buy up these things. But the adventure along the way and little story quotes and the decision you make really bring that world to life. And no, it's not the heaviest storytelling game. And no, it's really maybe not the best thought out euro in the world. But the combination really is made for a bunch of delightful play experiences for myself and my family. Yeah, I was actually, I think I introduced you to Ryan Lockett's game. There's about a time right when we started being friends where I was super into these games. And I don't know what's happened recently, but I'm not as interested in them. I see them on my shelf and I usually always pass over them, but maybe I should just try to commit and get a campaign of near and far going because it is, I think, my favorite one of his. Maybe Islebound might be slightly better. Yeah, I think we played Islebound the very first night I came to that game group. Yeah, it's a good memory for that reason alone. The issue with near and far, though, is I haven't even touched 10% of the content in that game just with the different maps. I've only ever played the starting maps. I don't even really know how leveling up works. And it just seems too daunting because we just don't get campaign games played in our Wednesday group. It just doesn't really no. work. No, for sure. I will also say that, and I know you have it, 
the Ember Mines expansion really, really improved the game a lot. Like one of the uh, kind of dumb strategies in the base game is to just spam the mine and get all your tents out, which ends the game and gets you a bunch of victory points. And that's efficient, but it's not fun. Right, 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 right. The Ember Mines replaces that with actually an uh, exploration game that's a little bit reminiscent of Above and Below, where you're laying out cards and you're actually going deeper into the mine and you run into some hazards as you go through the mine and you find things as you're in the mine. And it just adds so much theme and it actually turns it into a game rather than, hey, I'm just going to put out a lot of tents and get points. Yeah, I need to try it with the thing because I don't even think I've played the Amber Mines expansion. That's how that's how long it's been. No, I don't believe you ever have. Yeah, maybe I should just add this to my October, November bag or something and just make sure that it's one of the games that I get played often. I would highly recommend that. That's Near and Far, 2017 by Ryan Lockett and Red Raven Games. Wonderful. Number 12 is a game we've also talked about quite a bit that has been somewhat controversial between us. I'm talking about 2010's Twa by Sebastian Dujardin, Xavier Georges, Elaine Orban, Alexander Roche, and Pearl Games. Jake, I think this one has probably come back into my Oculus lately just because of the recent release of Black Angel, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would say so, because we played this game a bunch, right? And we've talked about it a million times, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, right? That winter after you just started joining the game group. And I remember liking it, but not being that into it and thinking that you were just like, we're absolutely enamored with this game. And I, Tyler and I just couldn't for the life of us figure it out. We thought it was good. We didn't think it was great, though. But the more and more that you've kind of percolated on it, I got to try this game again, because I think maybe there is more to it than I was originally seeing. And I think now that slight annoyance with the scoring cards, which we've talked about at least on six episodes. So please go back and listen to it if you haven't listened to them. I think I could resolve that. We should play this one again. Yeah, all we got to do is play with the end goals face up. I've played with that a couple of times. I don't think it hurt the game in any way, shape and form. And I've also come to realize how darn nasty this game can be. Man, you can do some unfriendly things with buying dice and kicking people out of buildings. And it's a pretty tight, pretty nasty little game. That's awesome. I was really hoping Black Angel would be Twa 2.0. And really, it emphasized what a genius of a design Twa really is. So let me back up for a second. We never really explained what this game actually is. This is a dice drafting game where you're essentially managing the city of Troyes and you've got invaders coming in that you have to fight off and you have to build the cathedral and you have to do all those day in the life of tasks inside a medieval French town. What gets interesting about this is that you're not just drafting dice, you're drafting other people's dice and you get to pay them for it. But if you use those dice, you can kick them out of the public buildings, which means they get less dice. But suddenly now you really can manage the game on I am getting your best resources from you and not letting you get them and using them to essentially get more points than you. And and, and that's a really nasty and really great little sub theme to the game. I'm kind of happy that I didn't have to play uh, the lesser version of this game in Black Angel and I get to just swing back to the tight euro that is Twa. Indeed. So, yes, this is a game that I certainly... Mm, this will likely be maybe in the uh, the December, January bag, maybe. Who knows? Got it. Now we're getting to the real juicy stuff I start to love. You're going from games that I like or could see why you like them to games that I love. All right. And it's going to be tough not to talk about each one of these forever. So let's get right into it. Number 11 is 2018. This is one of the two newest games on the list by Cole Worley and later games. This is Root. Jake, why am I picking war games on my list? I hate war games. I hate dudes on a map games. It's not a this is not a war game. This is not a war game. It's a Euro game game. with a slight amount of like interaction. I don't think it's a war game. I think it's more like a PAX game. Well, okay, I've never played a PAX game, so I guess you have. 
You played PAX Premier. Oh, sorry. I thought you were talking about (laughs) coin games, not PAX games. (laughs) No, I've heard it is similar to coin games, but I've only played one coin game and I don't feel comfortable enough making that comparison. But it feels like calling a game like PAX Premier a war game feels wrong to me. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the same thing with Root, where it's like, yeah, it may be, but like it doesn't feel like it fully encompasses what Root is about. Yeah, because you're right. Yes, a component of it is that. Okay, so background. You're different factions of cute little woodland furry animals running around in the woods, and you're trying to get dominance over the woods and be the best in the woods. Now, each of the factions has something wildly different that they're going to do. This is maybe one of the most asymmetric games I own, except for maybe Vast, one of their other games. But everybody's playing it essentially a different game. Like if you're playing the Bird Tribe, you're essentially playing Robo Rally where you're programming them out. And if you don't do that correctly, then there's a complete flip in the government and you get different powers, which you may want to do. If you're playing the Woodland Alliance, you're the Viet Cong and you're trying to usurp everything and get underneath uh, all the little creatures and band them to your side. If you're the Trash Panda, you're a lone wolf just running around doing your own thing and using other players to your advantage and so on and so forth. Man, that's amazing. Interesting, difficult to teach. But that's a really amazing twist on the game. And you're right, Jake. Really what this game is about is managing the other players relative to how you're doing. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would say. I mean, I've only still played this game once. You've played it more than once? No. You've really only played this one? Oh yeah, my God. it's because and I, I actually bought a copy so I can play this one more often. And Ooh. I have yet to play it. And the reason why I bought a copy is because you have all the expansions. And I thought that me just having the base version of it would be good enough. But now it seems like it's still under your control whether or not we play this game. I really love my one play of this game. This was during the time where we split into two tables a lot. And I was always at the next table running some games. I would rather run games less and play Root more. That's how much I like this game. And I've only played it once. It's ridiculous. It's a travesty. This is in my October, November bag. And it is what month? It's October as of one more day. Strong chance that's going to be with me tonight at game night. That's fine. I will happily not play anything else to bring this. I'm most likely just not even going to bring my bag of games into the thing because I just want to play the games in your bag more often and Root being one of them. It's such a good game. This is an interesting game like this. This was clearly one of the big standout games in 2018. I think that this was top of a lot of people's lists for game of the year. And this is the game that really pushed uh, Cole and later games into the forefront of game design. Then, boy, they sold a lot of copies of this one. Agreed. It was interesting, too, that ultimately a pretty heavy game. There's a lot of people bought copies of this game that normally would not like that type of game because, man, this thing is drenched in cuteness. It is. The, the presentation of it's absolutely wonderful. I'm excited to play it at least more than once. So that's uh, 2018's Root by Cole Worley and later games. Now, into the top 10. Let's kick right into it with a game that honestly probably shocked you more than any others in this top 20. Oh, this is I was very confused. It was on your top 10 because it, it I think a reoccurring theme, at least with me and you here is I've played most of these games once, maybe twice. And I remember saying, OK, that's cool. I understand why people could like it. And then you just didn't bring it out again. So I'm like, oh, he must have not liked it that much. That must be in like his seven bin. And this one was like the king of that thing where you really I like playing it. I'd love to see it more. And then all of a sudden, it just never came back out after that one time we played it. So the game we're talking about is 2014's Power Grid by Freedom and Freeze and Rio Grande Games. This is a game that's got, again, a million expansions, has a very big fan base around it. It's a game where you're trying to build power networks and you're trying to expand your power grid across whatever little country you happen to be playing the map for. Where the game really gets interesting is the auctions that take place at the beginning, because... 
a somewhat random set of power plants comes out and you're constantly trying to price those things and pick which power plants you want to get to make your power needs, which is going to define which resources you need to get, which are on a variable market. And depending on what position you're actually in, depends on what order you get to buy resources. So if you're actually in the lead, you get to do this stuff all last. And that's a huge handicap. There's this real weird tightrope throughout the game of trying to manage everything so that you're in second place, but ready to strike into first at exactly the right moment. And that's delightful. Jake, I think one of the reasons I don't bring this along is it's an odd shaped box that doesn't fit well into my game case. Oh, I know that feeling far too well. I've actually started buying those long, skinny Concordia games just to make sure that I have a stack of like three or four of them to bring to game night. <laughs> you know, yeah, Concordia fits into that pile too, for sure. Right, we're just like, why do they make this this shaped? It's ridiculous. And I understand why they have the, the maps and all that stuff. I get it from a production standpoint. But yeah, there's weird that there's these small little things that been our weird idiosyncrasies with our uh, game playing strategy with always going to a third location. Yeah, Power Grid, it's fun. Bring it more often. I'd like to play it more. I think another reason is, is that this is one of those games that a lot of our friends played a lot kind of in that dark time in our game before, you know, before I was really into it and before you were really into it. This is one of those dark era games. And I think a lot of people sort of played it out and got burned out on it before we discovered it. So now when we bring it out, it's a bit like somebody bringing out Katanda. So we kind of go, eh, eh, yeah, yeah, pass. <laughs> okay. I think it might suffer from that a little bit, that some, some of our friend, game friends are a little burned out on playing Power Grid. That makes sense. I can totally understand that. That's number 10, the greenest game on my list, <laughs> Power Grid 2014 by Freedom and Freeze, who makes everything green. All right. Number nine. If the listeners were scared, we are back safe and home with our Uve. I'm excited. Oh, yeah. Kyle, it's been uh, last one was number 19. Now at number nine, this is a game that was a damn travesty that we didn't play until our first time until this year. This is 2007's Agricola by Uve Rosenberg and Lookout Games. Also, weirdly, a controversial pick on my list. Why would that be, Jake? Well, the Caverna versus Agricola comparison. But as we've said in our one of our earlier podcasts, I think it's silly to compare them like that. They seem totally different to me. Oh, agreed. And uh, this is something that that exact comparison was something that kept you from playing it for a very long time. I don't need to play Agricola. I got Caverna. I love Caverna. I just listened to other people. Why, why, why would I waste my time learning a new game that I've been told by a myriad of people is at least replacement for another game? You know, why would I why would I learn the previous game? You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, when I did this two weeks ago, I sent it out to a few friends and just went, hey, check this out. And friend of mine and friend of the podcast, JJ, was baffled as to why I would have both Agricola and Caverna. Oops, foreshadowing in my top 10. Could not understand why on earth both of those were there, because you know what? Caverna clearly replaces Agricola, and man, I couldn't disagree yeah. more. No, it's a completely different game. The only thing that's similar to me is that it's uh, there's similar resources, it's themed similarly, but all you're doing in Agricola is it's a much tighter experience, and because you're dealt out this hand of cards to start, you're trying to make lemonade out of these lemons that you've been dealt, right? And seeing what you can do with this thing versus, okay, well, I'm staring at this big open board. I'm going to just start with the strategy. We'll kind of figure it out. You know, Agricola at least steers you in the right direction. And on top of that, Agricola is so much tighter than Caverna's. I can absolutely understand why people would like it just from that aspect alone. And that's a common theme. A lot of these games are in here not because they're comfortable experiences. It's because they're uncomfortable experiences that decisions feel real and they have long term implications. And sometimes those decisions can torpedo you for the entire rest of the game. And this this is a game where you can lose it in the early rounds. 
Agreed. One of the beefs that Agricola detractors will say this versus Caverna is the randomness of those cards. And the cards are powerful and you have to play to them in order to win. But I think that if you find it to be a challenge that way, you should maybe look at drafting them, which will then give you the chance to pick the powerful ones and actually pick out a strategy rather than the, hey, I got a crappy strategy that I don't want to do. Easily fixed by just drafting the cards. And uh, then you've got some options as far as which way you want to go with your strategy. So that's 2007's Agricola, a game about farming. Hey, it's Uwe Rosenberg. I think this is a game that if we look back in 2020, I think this is a game that will be higher, if I'm going to be honest. Wow, it's got upward mobility. I did end up buying a copy of this or trading for a copy just because I think it was kind of appalling that I didn't own it. And now that I own it, I don't know if I'll actually play it, but I'm happy I own it. Yeah, I think this is an evergreen title that if you're into this type of game, you should own a copy of. Agreed. I'd say the same thing about number eight. Number eight is for me an evergreen title. Of course, all of these are. But this is a game that I have probably taught to the largest number of people with what I would consider to be universal joy, universal love, universal something. This is 2014's Orleans by Reiner Stockhausen, published by TMG here in the U.S. Orleans is a bag builder. In fact, it's the game that invented the bag builder genre. It's sort of multiplayer solitaire in that every turn you're pulling out a group of workers and you're placing those workers to get stuff done. But the stuff you're getting done involves getting more workers. It involves traveling around the countryside and picking up resources. And it involves putting out uh, way stations on there in part of a little area control game. Every turn, different event comes up that are sort of randomized. And so you don't know exactly when these events, some good, some bad, pop up. And wow, I love this game. And... uh <laughs> I think this is another game that you've played like once, right, Jake? Absolutely. I've played it once. I've seen it played a lot and people really like it. And I understand why you like it. But again, I've only played it once. I'd like to play it more. This is my ship of Theseus where I have gone through and upgraded every single part of this game. And I just I love playing it for that. I've got great little resources and I've got the little plastic worker cubes to pull out instead of dumb little wooden chits and oh. My problem is, is that I've got box lift by about an inch because I've got all of the expansions packed in there, which, by the way, I think the trade and intrigue expansion is a near mandatory thing because the board at the end, the beneficial deeds board in the base game is a little vanilla and it certainly gets spiced up by the beneficial deeds board in the trade and intrigue expansion. So I've got that. I've got the five player game. So I don't know why we never think to pull this out when we're playing five players, but that's another option. Yeah, that is uh, 2014's. Orleans by Reiner Stockhausen and Tasty Minstrel Group. All right. Now, number seven is the other game that you immediately sent me a text on and went, WTF, question, question, question. And that's not because it was on the list. It's because it was not higher on the list. Yeah, I'm dis- I'm very disappointed in you at this placement, to be <laughs> candid. Very disappointed. There is very little difference between my number seven and number one, to be fair, though, Jake. And This game is a game that really has taken over the two of us. And if it's just the two of us, this is probably the game we're going to pull out. Not Twilight Struggle, not Fields of Arl. We're going to play Leaving Earth, which weirdly is not a two-player game, but plays great at two players. This is the uh, probably the smallest release game of any of them in my top 20. It's sort of, uh, you know, indie published by the Luminaris Group, designed by Joseph Fatula. And when I talk about 10 out of 10 themes with regards to Twilight Struggle, this is another 10 out of 10 themes. That 1960s, 1970s space race, let's try to beat the Russians, let's uh, do this crazy Kerbal space program thing that might blow up. Yeah, that's what Leaving Earth is in a box. 
Jake, thank you so much for teaching this game to me. Yeah, it was so random because I was just looking online once for games and kind of I'd gotten more hipster with my game taste at this point in time. And this one seemed pretty hipster, you know, not really published in really any real way. A lot of the components are laser cut. The cards, I believe, are still hand manufactured by the Luminaris group over, I think it's in California. And I bought this game. And I was just such a big fan of it. And I wanted to show it to you so much. And after you played it, I was kind of nervous if you're going to like it. And we we're trying to do that thing where we wouldn't talk about the game until we got on the podcast. And hearing you say you like it was such a relieving thing for me because this is, I think, <laughs> one of my favorite games. I won't spoil oh, it for next week, game. but this game is so fun. And all you're doing is it's just so thematic and it's so tight on what you're trying to do. The only detraction I think you and I both share with this game is the fact that it can be kind of mathed out, but that comes with an asterisk. So what this game does is it's a whole bunch of different ways to go places, right? So if you want to go to Mars and back, that will cost you XYZ amount of money and XYZ amount of testing and all this stuff. But you can figure out what it actually takes to be the most efficient way to move from Earth to Mars and back. And there's a, a guy who made all these spreadsheets online that shows you exactly how to do that. And so if you think this game is solving that question, then it's not very fun because it's already been done. But what's cool about this game is it's always the risk reward thing. Do you want to fly with an untested rocket? Do you want to do this with an untested rocket? All these different things. Do you want to sell these things to get $15 now from your opponents so that you can be able to do this quicker than they can to get the most points? And it was kind of weird hearing about all these different things that kind of make the game, I'm putting this in air quotes, solved. But with that, I still really love this game. I, I don't think it's as much as a detraction. I think that you think it is. Well, and I think I would say it's solved air quotes in a uh, single player game like you can play this solo it certainly is solved in that case. You know, there's always the random results deck. You know, you're always flipping a card and things might go boom. And that might be the one turn that puts you behind a step versus one of your opponents that gets there first. So even though you may be doing the optimal route to Mars, your rocket ship might blow up and your opponents might not. So that right there <laughs> causes you to pivot and do something suboptimal. And that's also not taking into account, actually, a trade and negotiation between players. The, hey, you have a development that I need, and I've got two spare Saturn Vs. Why don't I go uh, transfer these to your rocket garage in exchange for those two tested technologies? Yeah, and that's what really makes this game so fun. And the fact that you can do that, it's just so cool. It's such a good game. I love this game. I'm sad it's only number seven for you. However, all the games above it, I also really love. So this is the oh. juice where we really overlap here. Yeah, it, it's tough. I mean, when I was ranking these games, a lot of times you're looking at that going, I, I don't know. These are both awesome games. Yeah, I suppose I'd rather play number six than number seven because it maybe has broader appeal, but both of them are really good. And, you know, one thing we've never done with Leaving Earth, Jake, is have we played? We have played this three player, right? Yeah, we've played three player two or three times. Yeah, I'd, but we've never played it with four. I'd be interested to see what happens there. Yeah, hell, let's just go for it. Might get a little, I don't know. Would that get a little long with all the mathy going around? I don't know. No, I think but, it'd be fine. I just think you have to make it. This is one of those games where it doesn't really need to go in turn order. Um, everyone can kind of work on stuff as they go. And then if it does matter, that turn order will matter. Then we'll have to care about it. This is a game, too, that my 13-year-old son absolutely loves because he's super into Kerbal Space Program right now. <laughs> yeah. Like literally spends hours trying to go to every different planet and so forth. So this theme immediately appealed to them. And the math and figuring out all the uh, correct propulsions and weights and stuff like that, he got instantly and was able to do it all the math calculations in his head in some cases faster than me. So great learning game, too. Huge fan of this game. That's Leaving Earth 2015 by Joseph Fetula and the Luminaris Group.
All right, number six. Hey, we're back on the Uwe Rosenberg party. For those keeping count, this is the fourth one on the list. I alluded to this a couple seconds ago. This is the yin to Agricola's yang. 2013's Caverna, published locally by Lookout Games. Caverna's another farming game by Uwe Rosenberg. Weird. With a twist. The twist is what, Jake? This one is dwarves. You got caves, Mark. How fun is that? (laughs) And what do dwarves do? They go into the mine. They have caves. They mine out caves. And they have different buildings. It's kind of fun. And they like rubies. Mm, (laughs) Yes, of course. And they like donkeys. You know, those are their two. And donkeys. Yes. But Caverna is one of, I think, one of my first loves in the gaming world. Oh, me Um, too. I think it was one of yours, too. We kind of started getting really passionate into games, at least in my case, in like 2013, 2014. So I think I bought this game when it was like new. Uh, likewise too. I remember cracking the shrink on that. This was my very first Uwe Rosenberg big box game. And I remember cracking the shrink on that and learning the rules kind of on the fly so that we could play it that night with, uh, with Phil and JJ, it was JJ's copy. And I saw that I'm like, Oh, I heard that game's great. I really want to try that. He's like, great. Figure out the rules quick. (laughs) So (laughs) brutal. (laughs) So we pulled it out and you know, the rest is history. We absolutely loved it. And that is probably the game that launched my love for Uwe Rosenberg games in general. This game plays out over a number of rounds where you're trying to as efficiently as possible and in a different way than the other players, you're trying to make farms and grow crops and feed your dwarves and make more dwarves and dig mines and go adventuring and raise sheep and those things, all those farming dwarvy mining things. At the end of the game, it's a point salad, and whoever has the most points is the winner in this one. And boy, there's a lot of different ways to win in this one. And I found some this fall that didn't work. Yeah, we always play this game at the at our little cabin con and everything. But what I think we like most about this game is how beautifully hyper competitive I think it gets. This game is one of those things where you sit down and you kind of have to figure out what you're going to do, which is a little off putting. But what's cool about it is it gets to a point where you can really know what people need to win and you can start interacting with them in a way and taking certain spots that maybe are a B plus for you instead of an A plus spot to go to on a worker placement thing. But it means that your opponent's not going to get an A plus spot. They're going to get like a D spot. It's always fun to see kind of how everyone's going to figure it out. The question is, I think between Cavernas, do you want a softer game, a more relaxing, less punishing game that is a little bit more sandboxy and open and you probably will lose worse? Or do you want to play Agricola where it's kind of a making lemonade out of lemons game that is much tighter and much more brutal? For sure. I often hear game groups talk about they play a small number of games repeatedly and they'll just say, oh, we're playing this game that night and everybody already knows it and they just dive right in and there's no rules to each and they just start playing right away. I think in our game group, Caverna is one of the only titles I could say that about. And I think that's why we enjoy playing it so much is that that's one of the only games where we have a critical mass of players that just know how to play it. And we can dive right in and play it at a high level, just straight out of the box. Agreed. I'm a huge fan of Caverna. I'm happy that it's in someone's October and November bag so we can play it more often. Uncle Kirk. There it is. He (laughs) did it. He has that cool expansion, which hopefully we can talk about in a bit. Your number five is also another one of my favorite games, Mark, and it's a brief break from Uwe. Yes. Number five is a Alexander Fister game from 2016. This is a game about cowboys. Are you into cowboys, Jake? Absolutely not. I do not care for anywhere west of uh, the Rocky Mountains. So I just this <laughs> game is just no, no good for me. My dad was really into cowboys and Indians, you know, he kid of the 50s. And so apparently cowboys and Indians were the thing when you were grew up in the 50s. But I missed that one. But man, I love this game. 
Great Western Trail by Alexander Pfister. It's a game where you're trying to drive cattle down the Western Trail and you're stopping at different waypoints along the ways, which are really action selection spots that allow you to do different things like get more cows or build more waypoints or hire more workers to help you out. And then when you drive your cattle to the end of the line at Kansas City, you sell them for as much as you can, which is a set collection game. And then you get money for that and you drive your train a certain number of stops down the track. After a uh, number of trips around the block, you've completed the grid that marks the end of the game and you score up the points for your buildings and the uh, extra tiles you picked up and the cows in your herd. I find this game the hardest game to describe. I don't know why, because it has a million and a half cool mechanisms in it. And if you just describe the mechanisms, it doesn't seem like it actually fit together that well. Because, I mean, think about all the things it has. It has deck building. It has like this weird worker placement rondelle kind of thing that you get to add more spots (laughs) into. There's building progressions. There's these different workers that you need to get certain actions done. There's this track that you move down in a kind of interesting way where you frogs leap over the people in front of you. And it's just like a million and a half little mechanisms. And then on top of that, as you just alluded to, Mark, you do set collection at the end with this hand that you've been building the entire time getting to this one spot on, I guess, a rondelle. It's just a weird game because it really shouldn't work. But what it results in is this really tight, concise Euro game with a bunch of really interesting mechanisms that I am absolutely awful at. I have not played this game well whatsoever. (laughs) No, I don't do well at this game either, but I love it. Man, this is such a great game. It does tend to play long. The teach is more difficult than it should be. Like, this is one of the harder games in this list I find to teach. Oh, completely. I mean, it's, but it's not that hard. A lot of it flows, but there's just so many little hyper interesting mechanisms that I kind of associate with Alexander Fister. He does kind of cool things, little spins on things, but sometimes they work together and sometimes they don't. And I think that this Great Western Trail is a time that he absolutely hit it out of the park. Yeah. And this is a game that has been reprinted a bunch of times and is, uh, you know, squarely in the top 10 games in Board Game Geek as well. So we're not the only ones that think this is an amazing game. Yeah, try it. It is wonderful. One of my favorite games on your list. So I've played this with my family, too, and uh, they absolutely loved it. Uh, It's what my kids call the constipated cowboy games. Just look at the cover. You'll understand. Instantly, you'll understand. It's 2016's Great Western Trail by Alexander Pfister, published by Egert Spiele. Checking it at number five on my list overall. Number four. Hey, it's been at least one since we had an Uwe Rosenberg game. I told you I was a fanboy. Probably the most controversial Uwe Rosenberg between the two of us on our list. I'm talking about 2016's A Feast for Odin. The heaviest game that I have played the most number of times. Really? I guess I didn't. uh, Are you at 10 plays? Omar. Yeah, I've got. 13, 14 log plays of this one, which is amazing Mm. considering it's a giant box three to four hour game. Yeah, no, it's 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 great that you've been able to play a game you love so much. And I've thankfully missed a lot of the plays. You'd think I'd be good at that one, wouldn't you? I know, right? Oh, no. Are you or no? (laughs) No. (laughs) God, I'm actually a few times. It's actually surprising that I'm good at Feast for Odin because it's one of my least favorite Uwe Rosenberg games. I think we all have our games that inexplicably we undervalue compared to like, well, everybody else because Feast for Odin has been uh, near universally loved. I certainly know some other people that didn't think it was the greatest game ever, but oh, I certainly have my games that I'll admit is, you know, it's a great game. It's just not for me. And I think this falls into your bin for that too, doesn't it? Absolutely. I, I, I won't disparage anyone for liking it, but it's just not a game. I don't know why I've given it a good chance. It just doesn't sing to me. It's fine. It's just, it's a little long for what I want it to be. A lot of the parts about it that other people like doesn't sing to me. So it's just kind of a 
ends up being a little bit of a waste of time. As a background, what you're doing is you are a group of Vikings and you're trying to carry out Viking life and you're going out and doing Viking activities like you're raiding and you're whaling and you're you're farming, too, and you're building boats and you're building buildings and all kinds of different things in the uh, 63 odd action selection spaces that you have here. Meanwhile, you're getting goods, which you're trying to sack away onto your goods board, which is really a Tetris game that you're laying these tiles and stacking them creatively to cover up negative victory points and to get bonuses along the way. And I love the spatial puzzle. I love the wide variety of strategies and action placement spots that you can do with the number of Vikings and the types of tasks you can do. And I will definitely say that this was a top game before Norwegians pushes it over the spot. That's the 2018 expansion to A Feast for Odin that really opens up a number of strategies for the game. And I, I love this game. We have talked about it a handful of times and I keep on wanting to like it more. I wish I could be one of you guys and just like to play this game often because I think it could be something where it's almost like Caverna where you could just grind through it really quickly, you know? It has become that way for me in a lot of my playgroups that so many people know how to play this now that I can literally just pull this out and with a really, really, really sparse teach, which just involves walking down the action selection board and just go now do this, now do this. Most people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, let's roll and explaining the iconography too. I've had to reteach it a bunch of times this year because of re-adding in the Norwegians because that does change some things to the game. But even then, it was a little bit more of a supplemental teach. Gotcha. So... Up to the top three. I feel like we should have a little bumper sting there. Oh, I know. We should have little songs. (laughs) We're not that podcast. Number three from 2008. Another Uwe Rosenberg game. Ta-da! Surprising. Who would have thought? It involves resources. Yes. This is uh, the second oldest Uwe Rosenberg game on the list. 2008's La Havre. A game that is kind of new to the party for me, but I've now played it a whole bunch of times in the past year, enough that I feel pretty confident that, yeah, this is absolutely one of my all-time favorite games. Lahav is a game where you've got this weird little action selection, this weird little rondelle of player orders where your choices are super simple. You either grab some resources or you put your dude in a building and do whatever that building does. And every time through the rondelle, you have to feed your people like every good Uwe Rosenberg game. And at the end... Whoever has the most points is the winner. Where this game really gets interesting is how you convert those resources into better resources and how you manage the feeding of your people. Because all these buildings have a wide variety of different powers and you don't have to actually ever take your worker out of there. So you can put your guy in a building, do its power and leave him there, blocking it out for everybody else. And man, so many interesting decisions in this game. I love Lahav. I love your upgraded bits to it. I love the questions it asks but I don't really know it, if that makes sense. I don't feel I do either. And that's why one of the things I love about this game is that there is a lot of different strategies to this game. There's a lot of ways to play it wrong. There's a lot of ways to play it right. And I don't feel like I know it well enough to actually understand those things. But every time I have played it, it's been a delightful experience and leaving me clamoring for more. So I would love this to be another one of those Caverna-like evergreen, just pull out everybody knows how to play and away we go games. Well, and what's great about this game is is the fastest teach of any game. All you do to teach Lahav is explain two different things. And you have to explain each new building as it comes up. But all you're doing on your turn is a very simple action. And as long as people can get that figured out and make sure they know it, maybe after their first play, they can finally try to start moving towards the strategy of it. It's just such an awesome quick game. And it's amazing because I don't think he's done a lot of other games in the Lahavra mold. It seems like he's iterated on Agricola a lot with, I mean, Caverna and Feast Road and kind of feel pretty similar, but there hasn't been one that's been similar to La Havre. I'd like to come back more. 
Yeah. And actually, I'm, I'm interested to answer that question soon because I, you know, I, I talked about earlier, Aura and Labora is a game that often has been called Lahav 2.0 and a stepping stone from Glass Road, too. Now, I've read through the rules and I've prepped it up. I haven't played it yet. It very much seems like a uh, mashup of Lahav and Glass Road, two games which I love and I know you love. So I don't see how we can't love Aura and Labora. Agreed. But we're not talking about Aura and Labora. I will say one thing that might make this a little more acceptable to play on a weeknight, this game can run a little bit long. It can be really thinky, and especially if you're playing at high player counts, this one can run for a longer period of time. I wouldn't say too long because it's never felt like too long to me. This can be a three-hour game without trying too hard. Easily. There is a shorter version of this game, which I've never tried, and ultimately maybe that's the thing that pushes it over the line to get played a lot on Wednesdays. Yeah, I'd rather play this game that's 90% of the way there fun-wise and a little bit shorter maybe even 80, versus a very long version of this game, which means that we won't get it played as often. So next time I think we'll play it, uh, maybe we'll try to cram it in a smaller space and play the shorter game. We'll see. Let's do it. That's uh, 2008's La Havre by Uwe Rosenberg and Mayfair Games. Number two. I know this is not a game that you can say you've only played once or twice. Oh, no. Can I actually introduce it? Because I love it so much. All right, Jake. Because I think this is the one outside of Caverna that I played the most. This is Yokohama by Hisashi Hayashi, released in 2016. It's published here by TMG Games, but over in Asia, I think it's Okazu Brands. So, Mark, why don't you describe a little bit about Yokohama to the listeners here? Yeah. So what Yokohama is, is a variable setup board that represents all the little districts and areas inside the city of Yokohama. This is approximately 1900-ish, right when Japan is starting to open up to the outside world. And what you're doing is you're outside investors traveling around the city, trying to get resources and work deals, and you're bringing in technology to help out the Japanese, and you're also fulfilling trade contracts. Through the course of doing that, you're racing towards a point salad. There's a bunch of different ways you can end the game and win. So what do you like so much about this game, Mark? What do I love about this game? So what I love about it, I love the intense variability of the game with the amount of, you know, the way the different setup affects how you place the game. What I find just fascinating about this game is that the mechanism on how you move the presidents, they, th- those, are, those would be your workers, how you enhance each spot by leaving pieces behind to power it up and get better actions on each spot, I think is absolutely genius. And I love this game. Yeah, I completely agree. Everything you said about it is fun. But what's neat about this game is it is a just wide open game. You can do anything, right? Yep. But it ends up getting really tight. And I don't know why, because really, it's a game with a bajillion spots you can go to a bajillion things you can focus on. If you're not going to do this, you can pivot and do this. But it ends up being this incredibly tight, not cutthroat, but tight Euro game. My main complaint with is it seems like it can end really quickly if people go for either the church or the import office, if they're pushing really hard for it. And I like this game when it breathes a little bit more, not in terms of tightness, but in terms of length. Well, and I find that interesting, though, too, because some games, some games go long and it's all about getting a whole bunch of patents in place and fulfilling a bunch of contracts. Other times, man, it's a race in the in the church or it's a race to get out the import things. And you have to pivot quick and you have to recognize that that's how that game is going down. And you have to adapt because if somebody does that more successfully than you before you get out the number of contracts and patents you were hoping to get, you're going to do very poorly in that game. Yeah, I, I love Yokohama. I'm still so sad that neither one of us has gotten the Deluxified Edition because we'd both spent so much money on Deluxifying our own. We should really just pull the trigger and buy a deluxified edition now that there's been two Kickstarters of it. 
I had one in my hand for fifty dollars used at Gen Con this year. At you the you should have bought it. I would have just bought it. You know, I, I know mean, it's it's a waste. But we both love this game. Having a completely fully deluxified would have probably been worth it. At a certain point, all that would have gotten me at this point in time would have been a box with gold foil on the cover. Is <laughs> literally what right. I would have been paying for. But for the yeah, for the price, I probably should have bought it. I actually collared the guy that was standing behind me, who I'd been talking to in line, who plainly had very similar tastes to us. And I just I handed it to him and I said, dude, if you don't have this game, buy this one. I'm going to force you. And he's like, OK, and he ended up walking out with it. And I hope you loved it. If he's listening, I hope he loves it as much as we love it. So that is Yokohama by Hisashi Hayashi, published in 2016 by TMG Games here. Okazu Brands over in Japan. Finally, number one, this is a game that is it the new hotness or is it a new version of old hotness? Could be either. This is a game that has rocketed up Board Game Geek's list and has now cracked the top 10. And wow, I love this game. This is 2018's Brass Birmingham by Gavin Brown, Matt Tolman, and Martin Wallace, published by Roxley Games. This game hits every button in the book for me, Jake. It's super interesting decisions. It's super tight. It's a lot of different strategies. It's beautiful production. It's trains. Yeah, which we need and canals. It's canals. It's thematic. Man, I love this game. So what you're doing is you're a robber baron in industrial England going through a really dramatic point of change in England where, you know, everything's industrializing and you're trying to industrialize better than everybody else. You're trying to be the guy that builds the rail lines and, and builds all the factories and ships the goods more effectively than everybody else. Ultimately, it's a card-driven game that plays out over two different eras, the Canal era and the Rail era. At the end of that time, if you're the one that has successfully built the best factories and shipped the most goods and has the most rail links, you will win and you will win handsomely. Every game that I've played of this has been interesting, Jake. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I've played this one a lot and I really like it. It's just, I think it has a good production, but my only complaint about this game from a from a production standpoint is just, I don't really like the way it looks. I think it looks better than other games it's just not my design ethos but from a gameplay standpoint i don't know if there's anything default about this game i love the card play aspect i love that it's hand management i love that everything is so tight and you have to make sure that you know where you're going and what you're doing and if people cut you off it can be absolutely brutal i love that it has two different phases where the canals are functionally obsoleted i really like that like almost overnight. I love the different resources. I love building down the tech tree. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's one of the coolest games that we play. I just, it moves from something I like to something I like. I, I love this game, but it's, it would move it to something that I need to own if I just liked the way the production looked a little bit more. Sure. But I think that that is somewhat reflective of that period of time where, you know, it's you if you lived in industrialized England, I mean, I think na- life was somewhat oh. nasty, brutish and short and dark. Absolutely. I just don't like the way it looks. You know, I, I completely agree. You know, everything was sooty and kind of evil looking. And that's that's how the game is produced. And Brass Birmingham is actually the follow on the spiritual follow on to Brass Lancashire. And I think there's a direct sort of Agricola versus Caverna comparison between Lancashire and Birmingham. Whereas, you know, Lancashire is the Agricola of the crowd. It's meaner, it's tighter, it's nastier, it's people love it or hate it a little bit more. Whereas Birmingham is a little bit more like Caverna. It's a little bit more open, it's a little bit sandboxier, there's a few more options in there. As much as I love Agricola, I did rank Caverna higher. And as much as I love Lancashire, I rank Birmingham higher. So apparently I like sandboxier games. 
Right. Yeah. I'm happy that you joined my side because I much prefer Birmingham to uh, Lancashire. And I know I'm wrong on that internet. You don't have to get mad at me about it. Looking back at it again, there's my top 20 games as of fall 2019. Will these change? Sure. Are they everybody's favorite games? No way. Do I like Uwe Rosenberg too much? Yeah, I probably Absolutely. do. Absolutely. I can 100% <laughs> say that. I mean, six of the top 10 for those keeping track at home or top 20. Pardon me. I know. I couldn't believe that when I look back at my list and I was like, really? All the games that I own and there's six Uwe Rosenberg games at the top. If I were to be honest, if you were to say a walk up to my shelf of Uwe Rosenberg games and pull really any of them out, I'd be like, heck yeah, let's do it. That's awesome. Well, that's great. I mean, if as long as you find what you like and you like it so much, go for it. I think it's great. And I would say I will play pretty much any single game on this list. And the one that I like the least amount is A Feast for Odin. Other than that, these are just a wonderful list of games. You know, I'll happily play any one of these. Now, the best part about this is I have a sneaking suspicion you're going to hear the same conversation next week. Yeah, mine will be a little more different than yours. You don't like financial games as much as I do. Pretty much all of my top 20 is financial games. You have pretty much power grid and that's about it. But obviously you get a lot out of the financial side from 18xx. So that not being included, I'm sure makes sense. here. Of course. And if I were going to put these back in, by the way, 18xx and Gloomhaven would both be in my top five. I'm not sure exactly where they fit in there, but as much as I love Brass Birmingham at number one, would I, as a category, rather play 18xx? Yeah, I probably would, but is any individual 18xx? But that's eight games versus one game. Yeah, I understand why you yeah. don't think it's fair. I just can't compare them crosswise, and I'll talk about this on mine next week, but it's a wonderful list of 25 games there, Mark. Well, hey, with no further ado, I think that wraps her up for tonight, and let's save our conversation about your list. For next week, for your list. Let's do it. All right. Well, I've been Jake Kloffenstein, and you've been Mark Teske. Thank you guys so much for listening tonight, and we will talk to you soon. Night, folks. Good night. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Kloffenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.